Welcome to NARAL's The Morning After. Each Thursday, our podcast brings you the latest on reproductive health care, progressive politics, and the fight to keep abortion safe and legal. NARAL's The Morning After is a production of NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ProChoiceOH. Enjoy the show! Hey everyone, this is Gabe. Another week, another hearing, more testimony on the six-week abortion ban, Senate Bill 23. Uh, next week, we believe the committee in the House is going to vote on the bill, and the bill will go to the House floor for a full vote. Because the bill's been amended, it then goes back to the Senate for an up or down vote, no further amendments, before it could possibly go to Mike DeWine, who's already said that he'd sign it. But first, we've got more testimony. The first one you're going to hear today is Elizabeth Brown. She's Columbus City Council President Pro Tem. Uh, She's also Sherrod Brown's daughter. Uh, And she's an amazing advocate uh, who came to the State House to speak out against the bill. My name is Elizabeth Brown, and I am the President Pro Tempora of Columbus City Council. I am here to testify against Senate Bill 23 as a policymaker, a mother, and a person who cares deeply about family and child welfare. For the last several years, the City of Columbus has engaged in community-wide efforts to improve the health and well-being of women and babies in our city. Via our anti-infant mortality initiative, Celebrate One, we are taking on the most significant factors that contribute to Columbus's infant mortality rate by reducing premature births, eliminating sleep-related deaths, and connecting the disconnected to resources. We do this through a focus on expanding access to an enrollment in evidence-based home visiting, increased neighborhood-based safe sleep ambassador training, and encouraging early access to quality prenatal care. Thanks in part to this important work, in 2018, more Franklin County babies lived to celebrate their first birthdays, and the infant mortality rate continues to drop incrementally across all populations. We have seen a 23% decrease in the infant mortality rate since 2011, from 9.6 to 7.5 per 1,000 live births. Despite this progress, we still confront an overall infant mortality rate that is higher than the national rate in the United States, as well as persistent and unacceptable racial disparities that we must continue to address. The fact is African-American mothers still experience an infant mortality rate that is 2.5 times higher than white mothers in Franklin County. Throughout this work right here in my city, and in Ohio's own statewide efforts, and through consensus by experts around the country, it is clear that the largest contributing factor, the largest contributing factor to infant deaths is maternal health. The bottom line is that babies are more likely to live to their first birthdays if their mothers have a lifetime of good health care and health. Therefore, we are doing more each year to increase women's health and combat infant mortality. After our progress thus far, we cannot afford to turn backward. And that is part of what concerns me about Senate Bill 23. This bill would essentially eliminate all access to abortion in Ohio. This would work directly against our broader goals of improving women's and infants' health because abortion access is an important component of women's comprehensive health care. Research in states across the country has shown unequivocally that the more abortion restrictions a state has, the worse health outcomes that state has for women and children. 
Specifically, a study conducted by the Center for Reproductive Rights found that states with the most abortion restrictions had an increased likelihood for poor outcomes for women obtaining cervical cancer screenings, more chlamydia affections, more new HIV diagnoses, a higher incidence of low birth weights, more maternal deaths, higher incidence of preterm birth, and more unintended pregnancies. Additionally, they found higher infant, child, and teen mortality rates. Instead of passing Senate Bill 23, let's invest together as a state in doing more for the health of women and children. Let's invest in reducing unwanted pregnancies and promoting the success of all families. That starts with comprehensive sex education, medically accurate sex education in our schools, and increased access to contraceptive services. It also means quality affordable childcare, paid family leave, and other measures to support working families. I oppose this bill and I urge a no vote in this committee. This hearing was different. We heard from a lot of men for choice. David Brewer was one of several guys who testified about how he supported a partner when she chose abortion. My name is David Brewer. I've been a resident of Columbus for the past 20 years, and I'm here to testify against Senate Bill 23. My marriage, my family, and my career have all been made possible by straightforward access to safe legal abortion. In the early autumn of 1994, my then fiance, now my wife, became pregnant despite our diligent and responsible use of contraception. Even the best methods are only 98 and 99% effective. We were the 1%. I was immediately thrown into a panic. I was chronologically 25, but emotionally significantly younger than that and nowhere close to being ready to become a parent. Rebecca felt much the same way, only with the additional burden of the dread and shame that accompanies an unwanted pregnancy. Suddenly, all of our plans for our upcoming wedding, our hoped-for careers, indeed our entire life together, seemed to be thrown into chaos. What had been a joyful time in our lives with a great deal of excitement about the future had changed in a moment to fear, worry, and I'm now ashamed to say, resentment. Fortunately, we lived in California at the time, and so our decision that we should not have a child before we were ready to start a family was a personal and medical decision, not something in which the state felt it necessary to meddle. Rebecca had the abortion in a familiar facility, the hospital run by her HMO, Kaiser Permanente, where she received thorough and compassionate care that was attentive to both her present health and her future fertility. I helped her recover from the procedure, and we were able to go on with our wedding, our early married life, and our career preparations as we had hoped. Three years later, our daughter was born, a wanted and eagerly anticipated child. If Rebecca had been unable to have that abortion, or even if it was just made humiliating and awful by state interference, our lives would have unfolded quite differently, and I strongly suspect not nearly as well. Having those first few years together just as a couple gave us a foundation that has allowed us to weather the inevitable storms in any long-term relationship. This August will be our 24th wedding anniversary. I'm not certain we would have made it this far had it not been for that abortion. Having our children when we wanted to have them and were emotionally and financially ready to do so has allowed us to become the parents we wish to be, to help make our kids the splendid individuals that they are. Our daughter is about to graduate from Oberlin and enter the workforce in some form of public service. Several years ago, she worked for Representative Ramos, and that has really inspired her. Our son is now a junior in high school and hopes to join the Army Corps of Engineers. 
In many ways, they're quite different from one another, but they both grew up feeling cherished by parents who are ready to have them, and that's given them an inner strength that will allow them to face whatever difficulties may await them in adulthood. I fear that if we had begun our family under duress, our children would not be nearly as confident, kind, and talented as they are, and the world would be poorer for it. Finally, Finishing up my education at a non-hurried pace allowed me to produce work that was good enough for me to get hired by one of the finest research universities in the world, our own, The Ohio State University. As a result, I've been able to teach and make a difference in the lives of thousands of students over the past 20 years. Had I had to rush my education or divide my attention because of an unwanted child and an unexpected child, I suspect I would not have been able to get nearly as good a job as I did and perhaps not even find employment in the field for which I have a calling. So it's not an exaggeration to say that my entire life of the past 25 years has been made possible by the straightforward availability of a simple and constitutionally protected medical procedure in California in 1994. Yet, were SB uh, 23 to pass, a person in the same exact circumstances in Ohio in 2019 would be unable to avail herself of all the opportunities that I have had simply by virtue of where and when she lived, which seems profoundly unfair. That sort of arbitrary exercise of state power is both cruel and ultimately self-defeating because it squanders so much of the talent and potential of the lives of its citizens. If you want Ohio to flourish, and I'm sure you all do, then trust women to make their own decisions about their own health and future well-being. After all, it's their bodies who are the ones that are affected. Trust their partners and healthcare professionals to advise and support them and focus your, measures on, uh, your efforts on measures that will actually reduce unwanted pregnancies, such as readily accessible contraception and sex education that's actually based on science. For all these reasons and many more, I ask you to reject SB 23. It's unconstitutional, cruel, fundamentally immoral, and all around bad for Ohio. We also heard from a lot of clergy in this week's hearing. Reverend Linda Smith is going to be the first of three clergy members organized by the Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Um, my name is Reverend Linda Smith. I'm a Unitarian Universalist pastor who is retired. I live in Columbus. Every person has a birth story that is both sacred and deeply personal. My mother had eight children who she loved dearly. However, she paid a price. As the oldest, I experienced my mother becoming more anxious and depressed with each new birth. After I married and had two children, I told mom that I was stopping with two because that was all I felt I could handle. I did not want my children to be affected by my anxiety and depression. My husband had a vasectomy at a Planned Parenthood clinic because I had gotten pregnant with my second child, even though we were using birth control. So I did not want that to happen again. Mom told me, but not any of my other siblings, that she had asked her male doctor for birth control after her fifth child, but the physician was Roman Catholic and refused. Mom was, we were, the family was United Methodist and had no religious teachings against birth control. But mom's generation had been raised to honor and obey men. So she accepted her fate and had three more children. Mom became weaker and more distraught and I became the second mother of the family. We hardly saw our father because he worked long hours including Saturday to make ends meet. I had vowed that my life would be different. 
I believe that my husband and my doctor, who I always made sure was a woman, were my partners and that there were certain decisions which I alone would have the final decision. The Roe versus Wade decision gave women and families the freedom to say, to not only have an abortion, but to say no more unplanned or unwanted or unexpected pregnancies. The court's decision was based on science at that time. Viability was put at about 24 weeks of gestation. Science now has shown that a single body cell can be converted into an embryo and be induced to grow to its potential so we could have a person in every square inch of the whole world. The Bible says, in my interpretation, that life begins with the baby's first breath. My religious faith teaches not only that life is sacred, but also I would say that the Supreme Court made the right decision for the dignity and health of women, the right decision in 1973, and it's still the right decision. My faith teaches that it is a gift from God, actually, that women can have a safe and legal abortion if she believes that this is best for her situation. So whose moral, spiritual, and scientific belief should prevail in Ohio? The pro-life argument that life begins at conception or when the fetal heartbeat can be detected, in my opinion and my experience, is not shared by most people of faith. Saying something is a fact does not make it so even if one says they are speaking for God or interpreting his teachings. In America, my religious belief is equally valid. How can it be that an opinion can be substituted for a parent's deeply personal and sacred decision? How can a woman be made to carry to term a pregnancy resulting from rape or incest? Being forced to give birth after rape or incest is adding another trauma to her suffering. I would have had one if I needed it. It is just cruel in my mind. It's shocking to me that this six-week abortion ban be considered representative of a consensus of religious teachings. Taking such life-changing decisions away from the pregnant woman, teen, or even girl, her loved ones, and her physician is not only heartless, but is a violation of their dignity and humanity. A woman must be allowed to seek the guidance she trusts so that she can decide what she can handle. She has the right either to a safe abortion before six months or to carry the fetus to birth. That is her decision based on the counseling of her loved ones and physician. Any other requirement is a violation of her sacred rights and a violation of mine and millions of others' religious beliefs. And thank you for your kind attention. Second clergy member is Reverend Elizabeth Gettert, who did a great job fielding questions from the committee. My name is Reverend Elizabeth Gettert. I'm an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, and I pastor a fantastic congregation of people in Delaware, Ohio, where I live with my husband, Sam. And I'm here today to encourage you to oppose Senate Bill 23. I wish that nobody never needed an abortion ever. I wish that safe were sex for every, uh, sex were safe, I'm so nervous, I'm sorry. I wish that sex were safe for everyone all the time and that birth control worked the way it's supposed to 100% of the time and that pregnancy never had any complications. 
And I'm actually not in favor of abortion at any point along a pregnancy. I think there's a time to limit access, but six weeks is not that time. This bill is too narrow and it's too harsh. It doesn't take into account the horrifying situations where pregnancy results from rape or incest. Women need the right to choose what to do in those situations. It doesn't allow for the time that it takes to discover that you're pregnant, decide what to do about it, and then come up with the resources to carry out the decision that you've made. It doesn't address the fact that 75% of women choose abortion based on economic concerns and fear of the future. It doesn't acknowledge how pregnancy itself can be detrimental to physical, mental, emotional, financial, and spiritual health. Growing a baby is rough on you long before you have one. My values are grounded in scripture and God's care for the vulnerable and call for us to do the same, to me it means that we should look first to the actual persons who are already breathing in the world. In domestic violence situations, men often withhold contraception as a way to control their partners, and forcing a birth isn't gonna make that any better. We have more kids in need of safe and loving foster homes than we have people who are willing to take them in, and forcing more births isn't gonna fix that. The legacy of redlining means that we have concentrated areas of poverty where kids go hungry, especially when school is not in session, and forcing more births isn't going to do anything about that. The unborn, in my opinion, are already held in the hands of God near to the heart of our Heavenly Father and cradled at the very bosom of the one God who is the mother of us all. God protects the unborn. And God calls us to care and protect those who are already born. As lawmakers, you have a great opportunity to shape our state institutions in ways that reflect a consistent ethic of life from birth to the grave. I'm not naive. I know this bill is probably going to pass. And so I ask you, what are you going to do after that? What are you going to do with more kids in a system that's already broken and failing? What else are you going to do? My husband and I have friends in state government. I know that you are constantly pressured and forced to oversimplify situations that you know are incredibly complex. I pray regularly for you and your families that what God would give you wisdom and strength as you work on behalf of all of us. As a member of the clergy, I'm also a public servant, albeit on a different payroll, and I know how hard it is to have your work publicly scrutinized. I sincerely appreciate the work that you do, and I thank you for the opportunity to testify, and if you have any questions, I would be happy to try to answer them. Next up, we heard from Reverend Julia Corey. My name is the Reverend Julie Corey. I am an ordained minister in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and I currently serve as the senior minister at First Christian Church Disciples of Christ in Kent, Ohio. As such, I come at this issue from a pastoral care perspective. In that light, my views on this issue are formed about how we care for, not how we punish or shame women making this difficult decision. It has been my honor and a horror to hear the stories of women and their families as they have struggled with this difficult and intensely personal issue of abortion. 
It is an honor to have them come into my office and share their concerns with me. But it can be horrific because the decision these women ultimately make is one that is made out of grief, brokenness, and sadness. Rarely do I believe that this decision is made lightly. My father was an OBGYN for almost 60 years in the Columbus area. I was thinking some of you may have been delivered by him. His career included long stretches of volunteer work at Planned Parenthood, the establishment of a women's health clinic on the Near East Side so that women could receive affordable prenatal care and postnatal care. He also worked for over 10 years for the state of Ohio, providing gynecological care for, the, for women at the women's prison in Marysville, Ohio. He believed, and so do I, that affordable prenatal care is a right for all women, not just some who can afford it. He also believed that we, women should have agency over their own bodies. That is what he taught me and my sister. And that women are able to decide what is best for their own reproductive lives. My father knew, he taught me, that restrictive and punitive laws such as SB 23 will not ever end abortions. They will only end safe abortions. The passage of a bill such as SB 23 will not force women, will not only force women to seek out illegal and unsafe abortions, but it also seeks to compromise the sacred oath of medical professionals who desire to provide the best care possible for all of their patients. But the one thing that no one had to teach me is just plain common sense. And that's the fact that most women do not even know they are pregnant at six weeks. Or if the pregnancy is endangered by that time. And I also believe that it is common compassion that says no woman should ever have to bear a child which is the result of rape or incest. Unless the, the SB 23 includes provisions for rape and incest and unless it takes into account the um, health of the mother and unless women and their doctors have a reasonable amount of time to make this difficult decision. It is not a wise law but it is rather a law that says women should have no right over their own bodies, and that is an unjust law. Senate Bill 23 is not about life or love. It is not about compassion for the unborn. It is a punitive measure that seeks to enforce a fundamentalist, sexist, religious agenda on women of Ohio and as such, I ask that you defeat this bill. Our last witness today is Camille Crary from the Ohio Alliance to End Sexual Violence. They're opposing the bill specifically because it lacks exceptions for rape or incest. As Ohio Statewide Coalition, the Ohio Alliance to End Sexual Violence advocates for comprehensive responses and rape crisis services for survivors and empowers communities to prevent sexual violence. I'm here today specifically and narrowly to address Senate Bill 23's lack of exception for rape or incest. 
This lack of exception causes my agency grave concern, and compounding that concern is the fact that we were not invited to an interested parties meeting, which would have provided us the time and opportunity to share our expertise on victim recovery, express our concerns, and productively work through the technicalities of implementing such an exception. In most pregnancies, a fetal heartbeat is detectable as early as six weeks gestation. And it's very often the case that a woman doesn't know she's pregnant until after a detectable heartbeat. This is especially true for women who are emotionally traumatized by rape. Such women might not be anticipating a pregnancy at all, nor should they be forced to carry their rapist child to term. Furthermore, large health systems across Ohio currently will not schedule appointments to even confirm a pregnancy until eight weeks gestation. So if Senate Bill 23 becomes law, unless these systems very quickly change the standard of care, rape and incest victims served by these large healthcare providers, including the Cleveland Clinic system, will not be able to even confirm they're pregnant until after the deadline for abortion has passed. Similarly, victims of incest are most often abused from an incredibly young age and within their family home. Even without a resulting pregnancy, incest has a devastating impact on the lives of its victims. When forced to carry a family member abuser's child to term, those impacts are hugely magnified. Under Senate Bill 23, very young victims whose access to transportation is very often controlled by their abuser will likely not be able to access a prenatal appointment to confirm pregnancy or seek an abortion until after that deadline has passed. Ultimately forcing an incest victim to carry and potentially raise their family member abuser's child will force them into decades of additional abuse and this result must not be a function of Ohio law. Forcing any victim of rape or incest to carry her rapist child to term is a further violation of her body and an extension of the loss of control she experienced after sexual assault, or I'm sorry, during sexual assault. If a woman wishes to carry her child to term under such circumstances, that is her decision and that decision should be respected. But if she does not want to bring her pregnancy to term, she should not be forced to do so. Victims of rape should not have additional control over their bodies taken from them. They should retain every existing safe, legal, and federally permitted option to decide what is best for them. It's not an easy decision, but it should be the victim's decision to make because it wasn't their decision to be raped in the first place. For many victims who do become pregnant through rape or incest and wish to keep their child, our agency is very concerned that Ohio does not provide custody protections that are adequate for survivors. Specifically, though positive efforts were made in 2013 to provide some level of protection in the wake of the Ariel Castro case, these efforts did not do enough to protect either rape victims or the children conceived as a result of those heinous acts. As it currently stands on the grounds of rape or incest, um, the law currently requires first a finding beyond a reasonable doubt that the perpetrator raped the victim and then a second finding with the civil standard of clear and convincing evidence that it was that particular act of rape that caused the conception. This falls far below the federal rape survival 
I'm sorry, Survivor Child Custody Act, which acknowledges the extreme difficulty of achieving rape convictions because of unique evidentiary issues or very often victims' decisions not to report because of privacy concerns and fear that if there is not a conviction and the rapist finds out about the child, they will end up losing custody of that child. Because our law in Ohio falls so far below the federal standard, a rapist who evades conviction, however narrowly, can continue seeking out custody rights for the child until that child turns 18 years old. This is untenable for the victim, who should be permitted to move on with her life and parent her child, and dangerous for the child who risks being handed over to a perpetrator of rape or incest. Victims deserve to have control over what happens to their bodies in the aftermath of rape or incest, and for those reasons, my agency respectfully opposes Senate Bill 23. I'm happy to answer any questions today or in another setting. 